0: This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst Brockton Hill. Mr. Hill received a Juris Doctorate from the UCLA School of Law before earning his master's degree in counseling psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. He then went on to receive his Jungian training, earning a diploma in analytical psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles. He is currently on the faculty of the Newport Psychoanalytic Institute, serving in their training program, and lectures at the L.A. Jung Institute, where he served as president for the last two years and has been a training program instructor since 2010. He has lectured on Jung's two essays on analytical psychology, seminar on Nietzsche's Zarathustra, and the Red Book. His public lectures include Tarot as Archetypal Representation, Ariadne and Medea, woman's experience of abandonment in midlife, psychological defenses as symbolized in the horoscope, systemic financial collapse, Pluto's transit of Capricorn, and the topic of today's talk, When Worlds Collide, Psychological Astrology and Terrorism. In 2011, he appeared on a panel at the Wadsworth Theatre in Los Angeles to discuss the movie A Dangerous Method for the film series Real Talk with Stephen Farber. Mr. Hill's publications include Living in a Time of Nonsense, Lessons from Liber Primus in the Face of the Rounds of Hades, Ouroboros, a Review of Jung's Thinking on the Nature of the Psyche and the Transformation of Libido, and a film review of A Dangerous Method, the story of Jung, Freud, and Sabina Spielrein. He is presently a member of the Board of Directors, the Certifying Board, and the Personnel Committee at the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles, as well as a former past president of the Board of Directors and a member of the Ethics Committee. From 1996 through 2005, he served as chairman and member of the board of directors of Pacific Clinics in Pasadena, the largest nonprofit mental health provider in the western United States. He currently maintains private practices in Pasadena and West Los Angeles. This interview was recorded on July 5th, 2016, through the magic of Skype. And we pick up after I had asked him how he had become interested in Jung.
1: Uh, I'd first become interested in Jung back in college in about uh, 1979, 1980, something like that. So I had always uh, had an interest uh, both in Jung and at the same time I came across Jung. I also discovered psychological astrology as kind of put forward by Liz Green. Mm-hmm. And also discovered the Kabbalah, kind of all the same couple of month period. So those things stayed with me all the way through uh, undergraduate and then uh, law school and then as I was practicing law. And I got to about 1990, 1991, something like that. And all of a sudden my uh, interest in practicing just kind of evaporated very suddenly. up until that point, law had been a uh, challenging endeavor. I'd really enjoyed it. And then all of a sudden, over a very short period of time, it just kind of uh, was gone. Um, I'd actually uh, was going back to Europe, where I had been maybe 10 years previously. And uh, I almost didn't think I could make the trip because I was so busy with work. I was working on a a whole series of, of financial transactions and I'd uh, gotten sick. I thought I was going to have to cancel the whole thing. I managed to make it, and then in meeting my old friends uh, in Europe who were also professionals, I suddenly just felt very uh, awkward in, in, in terms of their perspective on life and what I was up to and the amount that I worked and so on. And when I came back from that trip, I was just not able to re-engage with the work the way I had previously, and I was kind of floundering around. And um, at some point over the next, maybe it was a few years later, I I thought about oh, uh, I would become a Jungian analyst, mm-hmm. and um, I looked into what uh, to the institute in Los Angeles and found out what I would need to do, and then I set about doing that. Um, but I think the Jung has a piece called uh, "Concerning Rebirth." I think it's in volume. Uh, 9b, I'm not sure. But in it, he talks about this myth or story from the Quran in which Moses and Joshua are, they go on a journey. And before they leave, Moses gives Joshua a fish to put in his wallet and to carry as they travel. And as they approach this spot that's described as where the two seas meet, the fish jumps out of the wallet and swims away. And Joshua doesn't realize that, and they just keep going. That night when they stop, Moses asks, okay, where's the fish? That's our dinner, and of course it's not there. So he says, well, we have to turn around and go back and find out where it, where it, where we left it. Mm-hmm. And they get back to this point where the two seas meet. And there instead of the fish is this figure called Kidr, K-H-I-D-R, I believe, who is this figure from the Quran who represents this uh, uh, immortal Figure, who very much a self figure, who is extremely wise, and from that point forward, the story is about how Moses convinces Kidder to allow him to travel with him, and that is also a very interesting piece of it. But for me, it kind of illustrates this notion of of the fish or the libido, which is very much connected to the self. When
0: that when that
1: goes away, when it suddenly leaves something, you have to sort of go back and find it.
0: Now, by libido, you're using it. The way Jung used it, and would you define that?
1: Well, I think for Jung, libido is desire. it's it's uh, it's really the essence of the psyche, um, that that whole sense of uh, desire or will, and it's it's what uh, eventually sort of transforms into uh, an experience of the self. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's that um, that desirousness in us that uh we really need in order to uh, make our way in life.
0: I'm sorry, I interrupted your story. I just wanted to make sure that...
1: That that was clear? Sure. Yeah,
0: that people were clear on the definition of that word and that it wasn't sexual.
1: Well, it certainly is sexual, um, but that's not all that it is. Mm-hmm. It has a lot more uh, to it than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for Jung, that, that, that energy is really what is... The, you know his first work is transformation of libido and it's all about how that 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 very primitive fundamental energy is transformed into everything cultural everything that that uh, uh, comes afterwards
2: mm-hmm.
1: so it's it's very uh, primal and it's very important for us individually so for me there was this sense when I had been practicing law that that uh, the sense of 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 challenge, of, of, of enjoyment, of, of real desire, had just sort of left uh, what I was up to. And uh, kind of following it led me to um, pursue becoming an analyst. Um, now, if at the time someone had told me it would be another 15 years before I would actually be an analyst, it might have dissuaded me, but uh, that's not what happened. I went to Pacifica and uh, also got into analysis because I had not been in analysis part of that point. And then from there, I had to uh, accumulate the hours to be licensed. And that took quite some time. And so I'd, I wasn't finally licensed until 2000. And then I began the analyst training program in 2001. And finally, it was certified in 2009.
0: What made you decide to go to Pacifica and get a master's degree before you became an analyst? Did you need that master's degree?
1: I had to have, in order to become an analyst, I had to be a licensed clinician in California. I see. So that was the, uh, and I was still practicing as an attorney. So I needed to be able to go to school someplace like Pacifica where I could do that on a one weekend a month basis. And then also proceed uh, to accumulate hours. There, you we, we need three thousand hours of uh, clinical work before you can uh, be licensed in California. So mm-hmm. it's a long, it's a long process.
0: It's a long process, and and you decided to do your Jungian training at the CG Jung Institute of Los Angeles, which mm-hmm. has actually been around since the nineteen forties, and yes, was founded by some of Jung's pupils, his students, mm-hmm. James mm-hmm. and Hilda Kirsch and Max Zeller, yes, uh, all refugees from Nazi Germany who were not able to stay in Zurich. And could you tell us a little bit about your experience of the Jung Institute in LA?
1: Well, I, the first time, my first experience at the Institute was in the 80s, uh, when the film uh, A Matter of Heart was first shown in mm-hmm. West Los Angeles. That was my first encounter with the Institute. I didn't Um, I didn't begin attending uh, seminars and classes there until about, until the point when I was thinking about becoming an analyst. So that would have been about 1992 and so, or so. And um, when I began at the Institute, Lori Zeller, who was Max Zeller's wife, was in the bookstore, and she had been there forever. And she was really in many ways kind of the heart and soul of the institute she was never an analyst although i think that um just prior to her retiring she was she was made an honorary analyst oh wow and um she was just so it was very uh it was a very special place to be able to go to the bookstore library and Mm -hmm. have lori there because she always had something very profound to say about whatever you might be researching or looking for and so uh, the Institute was always a place that I enjoyed for the public programs and for the bookstore library.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I began uh, an internship there. It must have been, in, well, actually, no, that's not true. My next big experience there was in 95 when I did the uh, seminar with Dr. Edinger. actually. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but, which, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Sure. Yeah.
1: Um, but the... Uh, The uh, I I guess that it was the the classes that were presented in the public programs um, were quite diverse, and uh, I always found very interesting. Um, So I always felt comfortable at the institute. Uh, And at the time, there were not many places in the country where you could actually study to become an analyst. There was uh, San Francisco, New York, Chicago. In Los Angeles, I don't think that the interregional had quite been formed. Mm-hmm. Possibly, it had been formed at that point, but so there were not many options to uh, study to become an analyst.
0: At some point, you became involved in the training program yourself at the institute. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, typically, what happens is as soon as you're you're certified, there's you, it's this uh, lovely time where you, uh, you're in a, usually someone's home and and uh, the certifying committee. Uh, accepts you and and there's a little celebration with champagne and then shortly thereafter maybe five minutes there will be okay so we have this (laughs) we have this committee we think you would be good for uh so it's a pretty it's a pretty quick transition into some form of engagement uh with the institute as an analyst either in the uh either teaching in the training program or on some kind of committee work
0: Mm -hmm. and you still do that now
1: Yes, yes. Um, I'm actually now on the certifying committee. And I just, I'm the, what's the term, the immediate past president. So I'm still on the board of directors.
0: And you just finished uh, a two-year term as president of the Institute. Is that right? Yes,
1: I did. Yes, I did. Mm -hmm.
0: What did that entail?
1: Well, we, at one point, being president of the Institute was really a great deal of work because we didn't have uh, an executive director. There were points in time when we did have an executive director, and that takes a lot of weight off of the president. So throughout the years, it's it's varied in terms of how much, how demanding it might be on the individual in that position. For myself, I'm very fortunate in that our executive director, Christoph Lemuel, has been on board for quite some time, and he's just... Uh, really does some very amazing work. So as president of the institute, it really means that I'm kind of the person who looks over his shoulder and Mm -hmm. uh, make sure that uh, we keep on track and run the board meetings. And It's not quite as uh, day-to-day as it might have been in the past.
0: Right. Well, I wanted to talk to you today about a recent presentation that you did, uh, I believe, at the Institute called, When Worlds Collide, Psychological Astrology and Terrorism. Mm -hmm. But I think first we should give some background on that because you attended, as you mentioned a, a minute ago, Edward Edinger's series of lectures that he gave at the Institute. On what he called the Archetype of the Apocalypse. And those 10 weekly lectures were edited and made into a book by the same name Archetype of the Apocalypse, Divine Vengeance, Terrorism, and the End of the World. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I'd first heard of that book when I interviewed Frith Luton back in episode three. I had not heard of it and I didn't have the book. And I just kind of kept it in the back of my mind. I thought, wow, that kind of is very timely, and, mm-hmm. and I should, you know, mm-hmm. have somebody talk about that. I had heard that you had given this talk. It's, was it sort of based on this book?
1: No, actually, it wasn't at all. Um, I had, uh, the topic had kind of come up for me in the fall in terms of thinking about the astrology of, psychological astrology of yes. terrorism. And uh, a, uh, Wendy McGinty, who runs our public programs, asked me to do something on it in the late spring and so that's what i came up with and so i I was really focused on the uh kind of the astrological significators i suppose um but certainly what i came up with and what i got to very much dovetails in with with dr ettinger's work um as i was saying i when the book came out in 1999 i actually i I bought it but i did not read it because i had I was in the middle of the training program and other things, and I had just finished taking the seminar a few years earlier. So I've now reviewed it, and it's um, it, it really is a very profound work that I don't think many of us who were in the seminar, I'm, I'm sure not many of us could have appreciated just how timely it was Mm. and how prescient it was.
0: Yeah, I just would like to say, uh, for those people who might not know who Edinger was, he was considered kind of the dean of Jungian analysts in the United States. And it says in the beginning of the book in the preface, which was written by George Elder, he said that Edinger found his conventional career as a physician meaningless. Just as he had already found unsatisfying his early upbringing as a Jehovah's Witness, his analyst was M. Esther Harding, and they had both founded the Jung Institute of New York. And then Edinger made his way to Los Angeles. So, what was your experience of him?
1: Well, I, you know, I've been through undergraduate, law school, and uh, Pacifica, and a lot of seminars and training program, but there was never an experience before or since, uh, like uh, his seminars. Um, and from what people told me, uh, the seminar he did on the apocalypse was was very much the tenor and tone of, of those that had gone before. I think he actually might have done one or two after, but uh, very serious. Um, he He would arrive with a lot of material that he wanted to get to. And my sense is that he did not Uh, the books that were published were typically transcripts of seminars like this that he had done. Mm -hmm. So when he was presenting this material, it was material that he was really intending to end up in book form. And so he uh, really had a, uh, a sense of what it was he wanted to talk about. There was not a lot of interaction with the Group. Typically, he would, you could leave questions at the end of the seminar that he might consider the following week. Uh, But there was not a lot of interaction because there was a a real focus. And um, the seminar was packed. And um, it was, I I I think it was a lot for people to, to take in. I think it would actually Mm -hmm. have been difficult for people to have a lot of questions because the material was so um, uh, complex and difficult.
0: There's a quote here, which I was really surprised by, and I tweeted it and it got a really big response. Mm -hmm. Um, In the book it says, Edinger is following up on the insights of Jung, who wrote concerning the symbolism of the world's end, quote, The coming of the Antichrist is not just a prophetic prediction, it is an inexorable psychological law. Mm-hmm. What on earth does that mean?
1: Well, I think that one, one problem of approaching that book, uh, uh, the archetype of the apocalypse and then references to Revelation, is that we all have some feelings about religion in general. And Christianity, in particular. And those words, apocalypse, revelation, um, end of the world, it it brings up quite an antichrist, brings up a very strong reaction on us, yeah, based on our own history. Um, I think that both Jung and Edinger are trying to get around that uh, that that immediate reaction to get to something a little deeper. So that, for instance, the the notion of Antichrist for Jung is not kind of the the image of the devil that we kind of uh, associate with that from the book of Revelation. It's rather the sense of materialism. Okay. Um, So for Jung, this this, this is rooted in uh, Jung's work Ion, which um, was published in the late 40s, and in it He really kind of psychoanalyzes the last 2,000 years of uh, history, which he identifies as being the Christian ion. And it comes from the notion in uh, astrology that the equinox moves over time, it takes about 2,000 years to move through a particular sign Mm -hmm. for about a 24,000, 27,000 year rotation. So the era immediately preceding uh, what's come to be known, the, the Christian era, was that of Ares. And it very much was about conquest and all of those things that we associate with Ares and the ram. And then the advent of Pisces uh, was quite different. And so for Jung and Ion, he examines it in terms of uh, the, the symbolism of the sign Pisces. And the Pisces is a sign of two fish kind of mm-hmm. swimming away from one another. And he looked at the first thousand years of that ion as being related to uh, the figure of Christ as he appears in the New Testament as this redeeming figure of love and uh, the incarnation of, of the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And then in the second 1,000 years, that's the time of the Antichrist, and for young that's that's kind of a literal sense of the other the opposite of christ which during that first thousand years there was this supreme emphasis on spiritual spirituality and moving away from all things having to do with the body okay. and then in the second thousand years there was this movement back towards the consideration of matter the development of science of uh Capitalism of all of the the various isms, the kind of moving away from the spiritual down to the the material. So, when Jung is talking about the Antichrist, he's talking about everything having to do with materiality, Uh, the body, uh, the uh, science, the, the the focus on the concrete and the real and the everyday as opposed to the spiritual. So that is. How Jung is looking at that that term Antichrist, mm-hmm. and Edinger kind of picks that up, and and then in addition to Ion, he goes on to write further about it in Answer to Job, and then finally, and what's the um, the undiscovered self is the third the third essay which Edinger considers kind of sum up. Jung's view on sort of this transformation of the God image from the image of God that prevailed during that 2,000-year cycle of Pisces as it's going to transform into whatever that image will be as we go into the next ion, which is the, the ion of Aquarius.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so that is what uh, you know, essentially Jung is saying that it's it's inexorable that this is going to happen because it's about the transformation of the human psyche.
0: And are we in the age of uh, Aquarius now?
1: Well, that's open to argument. In Jung's uh, book Ion, I believe that the dates, the later dates he gave were something like 1997, 1996.
2: Again, mm-hmm. he's writing this in the
1: mid-40s. Right. There are astrologers who... Um, We'll put the date as, as anywhere up until uh, like 150 years from now, like right. 2160 or yeah. something like that. So the the issue is that there is no strong demarcation up there in the heavens between Pisces and Aquarius in terms of where that transition is. Um, so th- there's 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 disagreement as to when that uh, might be. Uh, for me personally, I've always felt that with the discovery of, of Uranus in the late yes. 18th century, that that really marked because Uranus rules Aquarius, and from that point forward, with the Age of Reason and the revolutions here and in France, and just the uh, Industrial Revolution, all of the the big changes that really became they'd been they'd been building and and kind of. Uh, Uh, showing up through the scientific revolution and alchemy and all of the various, the reformation, all these different changes. But really with the age of reason, the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, things really sped up dramatically. And it's just continued to uh, go in that direction. So uh, are we, you know, where are we? Uh, I think that uh, we're certainly in an age of transition. Whether are transitioning, at the you know into the beginning of Aquarius or at the end of Pisces, there's still this sense of of quite a transition happening.
0: Yes, and so the book is about the apocalypse, and um, Edinger says that the question that really concerns him is, what does the apocalypse mean psychologically? Mm-hmm. And that his answer is that it means the momentous event of the coming of the self into mm-hmm. conscious realization.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that it is a momentous event, literally world shattering. Yes, that, that that's what the content of the apocalypse archetype presents, the shattering mm-hmm. of the world as it has been, followed by its reconstitution. Yes. So, that's sort of where we are now. And would you say that we're in it, we're going through it?
1: Well, we're going through some – it's always – it can always feel like whatever time we happen to be living in is the most uh, upsetting. Yeah, (laughs) right. Uh, But but we don't have to look too far back in history to find other times. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the whole – as Edinger talks about the whole notion of the end of the world – it's come up at the end of every century since since you know, 1,000, since a 1, thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Every century was going to be the end of the world. So, what what human beings have had to struggle with in terms of plagues and wars and uh, natural disasters, that sense of it of everything coming to an end mm-hmm. is is always present. It's always there, whether this time is worse or not is is arguable we we certainly because of the mass communication we certainly are much more aware of all of the tragedies and difficulties of the world it's very where it's wherever it might be happening we're we're confronted with it mm. uh but it's hard you know jung had this statement about um, he asked the question who discovered water and he said well i don't know but it wasn't a fish Mm. Uh, because a fish is in the water. So yeah. that's that's where we are. We're in it. And it's hard to, to have uh, a true perspective on w- what is happening objectively.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but it certainly does feel like it's very transformational. And as Edinger mm-hmm. talked about the term, uh, it's certainly applicable to individuals uh, yeah. when we come into experience of the self because it's going to be the experience of everything you know the what what erupts is everything of which we are uh, that we have not ascribed to the self all of the the dark side of the self whatever that might be for us it's the it's the opposites uh, because the self for jung is is the this combination of it's a wholeness of opposites and so having to tolerate these aspects of the self that we that have not been in consciousness that we've not considered to be Part of our awareness Mm. is always going to be an apocalypse, a revelation.
0: How is the apocalypse an archetype? What does that mean?
1: Well, it's a it's a a, in the beginning of that book, Edinger gives a good definition. I don't have it handy, but uh, the focus is on a pattern, uh, some kind of pattern of behavior that pre-exists in the human psyche.
0: Yeah, he calls it an ancient, pre-existent pattern of the psyche.
1: Yes. And so, that, uh, and, and just as we were talking about the sense that throughout history, whenever we are challenged by some something that confronts us, that challenges our sense of the world as we know it, that is... That is a, that's an archetype. That, mm-hmm. this sense of something that's, that's overwhelming, it's going to undermine us, our whole world is going to change overnight. That has been a human experience from the beginning, that suddenly, from, from whatever source, the world as we know it could change or end. So it, it's, it's very much rooted in us, and therefore it can be very challenging to identify uh, okay. when it's happening truly on a global scale or is this just happening to me or is this happening to a, a part of the world mm-hmm. you know what is this uh, what does this really mean
0: mm-hmm. so would you tell us a little bit about the concept of being possessed by an archetype because edinger says that it's always the passionate intensity that reveals the possession by an archetype what does that mean
1: Well, I think he uses this this imagery of giants or angels Mm -hmm. coming down from heaven and devouring men. And this is an image of some kind of archetypal pattern uh, devouring us. And the the issue is always, are are we going to be eaten by the archetype or are we going to eat it? Meaning, is it going to assimilate us to it or are we going to assimilate it to us, the ego? Are we going to be able to... Eat enough of it that it it becomes conscious, as opposed to something oh, that right. that runs us. So the the whole if we there is a passage that Edinger quotes in his book from Matthew about uh, the the revelation or the coming again of of Christ, in which it's all based on the notion that. How we treat others is a reflection of how we are treating Christ and if we treat others well we will be redeemed and taken up into heaven and if we treat others poorly, uh, essentially we will be treating God or the Christ or the self poorly and we will go down into hell. And that is very much an image of selflessness and it's very congruent with Pisces and uh, particularly Pisces as as a feeling sign a feeling nature so they're Mm -hmm. they're they're very much values of feeling very very much about selflessness so one of the things one of the pieces that comes up in the in the uh that would be ascribed to the antichrist is selfishness the the focus on oneself at the expense of others
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and so to the degree that that archetype erupts so for if we can imagine through this this period of of the Piscean age, selfishness is is not considered a value. And it's really kind of suppressed into the unconscious. So when that erupts later on, uh, we can become possessed by it. We can become possessed by the notion of selfishness. Um, uh, I I think some of the uh, focus now on uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Yes. That, that seems to be sort of a, a rampaging diagnosis at this point.
0: Yes, I've noticed that.
1: That can be seen as, as sort of this being possessed by uh, the, the archetype of selfishness. That it's not something that we've been able to eat ourselves to integrate the notion that, yes, we want to do unto others but we also want to do unto ourselves in a way that's positive and self-affirming and and, and a in and a balanced fashion of both caring for others and caring for ourselves to be able to sort of eat that archetype of selfishness, to integrate it in a way that's mm-hmm. that's made conscious as opposed to being possessed by it. So that is my way of kind of looking at the way that uh Edinger talks about being are we are we possessed by an archetype or is it something that we can eat that can, we can integrate into, uh, a, a human form.
0: So what are ways that we can integrate things instead of being possessed by them? What does that take?
1: It's challenging, uh, depending on what it is that comes up. Certainly sexuality is one that is, is particularly challenging because it is something that, uh, to, to come into relationship to our own sexuality in a way that does not possess us that we're actually able to possess in a way that's uh, human that uh, allows us to relate to others in a related human fashion and not to uh, be in relationship to others as kind of objects of our of our sexuality which is really sort of possessing us in that in that state so it it takes um, uh attempting to be to stop and reflect on what it is that we're doing, uh, certainly any sort of work we can do with the unconscious in terms of dream work mm-hmm. will typically help us recognize uh how we might be threatened with possession and and how to and what the antidote
0: might be to that. Mm-hmm. Edinger outlines the four aspects of the apocalypse, revelation, judgment, destruction or punishment, and a new world. He says that the four aspects of apocalyptic literature also apply to individual manifestation, Mm -hmm. right? So there are psychological correlates to these four things. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And would would you speak a little bit about that?
1: Well, uh, typically, the 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 revelation, the first piece that he talks about, is um, the coming into awareness of something in our life that is typically a defeat of some sort, mm. some some experience where how we imagine uh, ourselves uh, in the world is challenged. Okay, uh, and that could come up. It can come up. From the unconscious, or it can come up an outer experience. Then the 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 piece on judgment mm-hmm. is the experience really is as he goes into great detail of being seen, this image of the eye that is following us and that is watching us. And that that is an image of an other that there's there's the this sense of going from the state of Being in the world from the perspective of the ego to suddenly having a sense of there's something else, there's some other that is watching us, that's judging us, that's holding us accountable.
0: Now, could I just ask you, is that, I I see the symbol of this all-seeing eye. Mm -hmm. I see that a lot. I'm seeing Mm -hmm. it more and more. Is that, does that fall into this as far as Mm -hmm. it's something other than ourselves in in the form of our egos? It's something Other, but it's not outside of us. Is that what you're it, saying?
1: It, yes, that it's actually typically, obviously, in a paranoid projection, it's something that we that we imagine oh, is we, somebody is actually watching us. Yeah. Then. But that is a that is a manifestation of the same sense of being seen or judged or watched. It's this projection of the autonomous psyche into the world. If if we're able to contain it within our own uh, consciousness. It's this uh, awareness of feeling watched and of, of dreams of being seen that way, uh, dreams of cameras, you know. And people will dream about being in some situation where there's a camera watching them in a public place or otherwise. And obviously, it you know, the outer trigger would be something to do with the, you know, the government watching me or spying right. on me. Uh, but if we delve into it, it can be this sense that somehow I'm that there's this other subject outside of myself within my within my psyche that's mm-hmm. watching and judging me.
0: I see, right? And
1: then the next after, let's see, it's revelation, judgment, destruction,
0: destruction or yes. punishment,
1: destruction and punishment. And typically, that can be the experience when we're going through an analysis or some other process that that constellates the self of having all of of how we've seen the world just kind of crumble as far as our structures of what we believed in, what we counted on, uh, just our assumptions about how things worked. Having that uh, just kind of come apart, whether it's literally or it's just psychologically that we just come to doubt so much of that we so much that we took for granted and it's a very trying period of time to go through because there's no sense of how long it will last or what we will be mm-hmm. left with i think there's a term there's a something in uh, jung's mysterium Conunctionis where he asks the question what is holding me up with when all visible means of support are gone and that's kind of that getting to sort of that place of rubble
2: mm-hmm.
1: where what is actually holding me up now that there's just this landscape of nothing.
0: And, ha- and how does the punishment come in? You know, who is the punisher? Is it us?
1: Well, it's the, 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 the punisher is, is our own, well, it can be sort of our own sense of guilt, It can be projected into some sense, you know, dreams of actually something pursuing us, uh, punishing us. There's a wonderful poem that Eninger would quote at times about being uh, being pursued by the hounds of hell. I don't remember. I can't recall who was the author of that, but it's this image of of being pursued and of eventually we're caught and uh, kind of what. What catches us is this this self, this much larger personality, mm-hmm. um, and depending on on how strong the ego is, that can either be uh, overwhelming or it can be uh, coming into relationship with something larger.
0: Mm-hmm. And then the coming of a new world.
1: Yes, and that's the experience of kind of how um, you know what opens up afterwards when there's been such a transformation of of how what are the new values
0: but that's just potential though right because we could could we stop after this third phase this destruction or punishment and just kind of that's it we're done
1: um it would be a very that would be a very difficult place to live in for an extended period of time. But well, I mean, sure it could
0: kill people, couldn't it?
1: Absolutely. That's yeah. It can be. It can be absolutely overwhelming and um, uh, incapacitate us in some fashion.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. So the coming of the new world is, uh, if we, if we, if we make it that far.
1: hmm It's the yes, absolutely. If we make it that far.
0: And it's about uh, becoming conscious and and having a relationship with the self and becoming whole? Is that what the new world is?
1: Yes, and I don't know that it would be a, um, a one-time ending phenomena. I think. <laughs> right. That it, it, t- it tends to be more sort of a uh, a kind of an ever-enlarging mm. kind of experience where, where there's a little bit more that's that's bit off and assimilated. Uh both Jung and Edinger refer to this image of the messianic banquet at the end of time uh, that shows up a lot in Jewish legend. Mm-hmm. Of at the end of time, there will be this banquet on which the the elect or the chosen or everyone I'm not it's not clear will feast on the bodies of Behemoth and Leviathan, the, the great serpent and the great land animal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's this image of kind of again assimilating the, this very dark primordial aspect of the of the psyche. And uh, we can only bite off so much of that as a, at a time. And so this whole process of, of revelation is, is something that uh, may happen uh, many more times than once.
0: And he also mentions the emergence of certain images in this aspect um the mandala which is Mm -hmm. a circle and Mm -hmm. the quaternity which is Mm -hmm. an aspect of four Mm -hmm. so is that because they represent wholeness that they they come up
1: well both uh the the quaternity is an image of wholeness on the uh the the level of earth or the level of uh, concrete reality okay The, the image of the cube of the, of the square of the cross, are images of the earth. Of
2: mm-hmm.
1: they're also images of, uh, in terms of astrology, images of of Saturn, of of, of kind of concrete reality.
0: Yeah.
1: So that cross or square is an image of wholeness on the physical, embodied level, whereas a circle is an image of wholeness on the on the level of spirit. So when you put those together, it's really the bringing together of spirit and matter, of, of kind of the two ends of the psyche of, of spirit and instinct uh, actually being uh, held together within the consciousness of an individual.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that the mandala uh, can be very helpful in, in uh, giving us something, giving us a reference point for trying to hold those very different aspects of the psyche together.
0: And that's the new world. So how did this figure into the talk? I'd like for you to speak to us about the talk you gave uh, When Worlds Collide, Psychological mm-hmm. Astrology and Terrorism. Mm-hmm. You focused on the outer planets, the mm-hmm. transpersonal planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Yes. And um, tell us a little bit about your talk.
1: Well, I when I began this, I was uh, – a few years ago, in 2008, I'd given a talk and then later a, a paper that you referenced on living in a time of nonsense, mm-hmm. which looked at how, um, at the time that Jung worked on the Red Book and just prior to World War One, uh, this was the time when uh, the planet Pluto moved into the sign Cancer. Now, at the time, Pluto had not been had not yet been discovered, uh, but in retrospect, that was that was when. Pluto entered cancer and it stayed there until just a few months prior to Hitler's invasion of Poland in 1939. And during that time of, of Pluto in cancer, there was this uh, real challenge to everything having to do with uh, cancer has to do with the mother. It's Mm -hmm. the fourth house of the Zodiac. And during that period of time, everything having to do with identity, security, home, um, when it was severely challenged. Uh, nation states were blown up. The whole, the whole sense of, of how the world worked was really brought into question very severely. And that in that talk, it was, it was focused on, on that, uh, you know, through Jung's work that he did that prompted the Red book, uh, he was able to kind of struggle with those issues prior to them manifesting in the world in the form of World War I and everything that came in the interwar years. Now, if we fast forward to 2008, Pluto at that point was entering Capricorn, which is the the 10th house of the Zodiac, and it represents the father.
0: And And it's the sign opposite Cancer, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So it's going from the mother... Uh, so during Jung's time, it was challenging everything having to do with mother, containment, nurturing, identity, mm-hmm. to father, and so everything having to do with authority, um, j- just the how the world is structured, how um, any embodiment of authority w- would likely be severely challenged, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what we've witnessed over the last eight years since it entered. Capricorn. Now, at the same time, both in in Jung's time, well, actually, just uh, at the time that uh, Hitler came to power in 1931 or 32, Uranus was in Aries, squaring Pluto in Cancer, and now, currently, we have this: we have Pluto in Capricorn with Uranus, and again in Aries, yes. squaring Pluto. So you get these same uh, very. Uh, challenging, conflictual positions of of Uranus having to do with rapid change, uh, technological advance, Mm -hmm. um, just these mercurial uh, rapid changes in all forms of society conflicting with the insecurities that are going to be brought about uh, as a result of all of these challenges to authority. So when I first began this talk about when worlds collide, and uh, psychological astrology and terrorism my thinking was that that's basically what i would be talking about and then also throw into that mix the fact that you have the uh, it's not a planet but the uh the object chiron yes uh which is in pisces and it's in a an inconjunct relationship to uranus which is a kind of a, a very uh uncomfortable awkward mm-hmm. relationship between the two and Chiron has to do with our woundedness, and it's in the sign of Pisces, which has to do with our again our feeling relationship, our sense of self-sacrifice, our mm-hmm. sense of victimhood. So my initial thoughts were that that these these overall uh, with Uranus, I really see this this image of progress and development that we're so that's that's happening so rapidly in the west in terms of technology in particular that uh life economically financially technologically is just changing so rapidly that it really produces a lot of stresses uh, in terms of just how we think about our world how our world is is ordered uh that capricornian sense of of Th- this is how things work. This is my position. Uh, this is my relationship to others. And it's something that I can kind of depend on. And even if I uh, feel I'm in a lower position to others, at least I know what my position is. But with Pluto coming through and challenging all of that, and then having that in conflict with this Uranian rapid advance, it brings up a lot of of uh, uh, uncertainty um anxiety, fear, uh, that manifests in 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 many different ways. We can certainly see it uh, in the West, in our country. But in other parts of the world that are in a a position such as the Middle East, which are really still very much living in, in the Piscean Age, and this is where my talk began to change a little bit as I worked on it, was this recognition that in many ways, when you look at the history of the Middle East, and particularly uh, when you look at the Ottoman Empire and how it probably in about 1500 or so was, was certainly equal to the West, if not superior uh, technologically and otherwise. Since that period, it just, it just did not keep up. It really kind of stayed in that, in really the same position it had been in for some 500 years as the West advanced just... Uh, exponentially so in many respects the the world of the Middle East really is still carrying that that very Piscean sense of values uh, the focus on relationships being very important what I referenced earlier about uh, uh, that quote from Matthew about uh, caring for others and the values of relationship and care for others being superior to those of, of selfishness,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: the Middle East still very much carries that. So, even though this conflict between the, the Middle East and the West has been kind of portrayed as a, as a conflict of civilizations, I think it's more this conflict of ages almost mm-hmm. or, or psychological states
2: mm-hmm.
1: that uh, the, the, the kind of the, the state of the Middle East is very much a state of, of people living in. A Piscean era. Um, I sp- was fortunate enough to spend a good bit of time in Egypt, Israel, and Turkey back in 1980, 81, or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, in you know, if, at that point, it's, I'm sure it's changed drastically since then. But to be in Cairo was really like stepping back into the you know 15th century Europe or something. Mm. And uh, the the way that people would treat you. Uh, that would almost kind of give you the shirt off their back. It was it was very much this sense of relationship, mm-hmm. and there is a tremendous um, ignorance about the feminine, for instance, about the reality of of women uh, on the part of men in the Middle East. And yeah. they had a, a whole string of, ser- of of experiences kind of demonstrating that. And I think that that's very much the way Europe was, say, 500 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, in many ways, you, there's this kind of conflict between this sort of Aquarian uh, sense of value, which is more focused on the individual, um, on technology, on on rationality in particular, because you're moving from a sign of feeling in Pisces to a sign of thinking in Aquarius, and all of the different, we can really look at uh, astrological signs as all of the fire signs being intuitive, all of the water signs being feeling, all of the thinking, sign, all of the air signs being thinking, and the earth signs being much more about sensation if we want to think about it typologically. Mm-hmm. And when you move from, say, moving from, from Aries of, of fire or, or sign of intuition to Pisces, a sign of feeling or water, the transition is not nearly as abrupt or difficult as going from Pisces, the sign of feeling, to Aquarius, the sign of thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you see that conflict, uh, for instance, when you go from the age of reason to romanticism, uh, that reaction of the, the feeling reaction of romanticism to the thinking values of the age of reason, and you see this back and forth through the development of the western psyche, a lot of that that back and forth, that development, really was foreclosed in the Middle East, um, in the Ottoman Empire, in uh, kind of how life is experienced there. So now there's this this abrupt conflict between uh, values of relationship, community, feeling, and these much more Thinking values that we hold today in the West. Um, so that was kind of the essence of the talk. Was that that this is kind of a manifestation, and and the terrorism part comes in because
2: yeah.
1: again, with when um, when you come from that very Pisces is a sign of self-sacrifice. So uh, and and the martyr. So you have that as kind of an overriding uh, ethos or, or value. And then you throw into it the, just the terrible sense of, of, of uh, just not having a place in the world uh, in, in terms of uh, the values that you hold no longer mattering or, or no longer uh, having a way for them to be defended. Uh, it, this this tremendous wounding that occurs, and the reaction can be this uh, tremendous rage that manifests in some sort of uh, suicidal action that that kills others. Mm-hmm. So this this blowing ourselves up image. Um, I was reading an article recently uh, in which the you know the struggles in the Middle East were looked at from the kind of the street level view, and one story was given of this young man who. Uh, in the Egyptian revolution of a few years past, he mm-hmm. had been a spokesman. And he was a very liberal-oriented young man who really supported the ideas of democracy and um, well, liberal political philosophy. However, as a result of, of everything uh, going south in, in Egypt and having that whole dream kind of, of squashed, he ended up as a suicide bomber, uh, who killed himself for ISIS in Syria, not too long ago.
2: Mm.
1: So it's someone who went from this this uh, place of of hope and trying to bring about uh, significant change in his in his culture, in his in his in his land, in his country, mm-hmm. uh, to someone who who really was f- full of so much rage as to commit that kind of an act because it's a, it is this very rageful act to it's it's this combination of rage and self-sacrifice uh in that image of of kind of a of a suicide bomber
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so that was kind of the, that was uh, i guess the gist of where i was coming from in that talk
0: mhm I'd like to finish by having you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the movie A Dangerous Method. Back in 2011, you were on Real Talk with Stephen Farber. I think you were part of a panel Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And I, I had been asked myself to talk about that movie on a podcast called No Totally, And, you know, it was just my take, just my opinion. And I like to hear others, Jungians, um, what their take on that movie was. Because it was a Hollywood movie. It was a David Cronenberg film with big stars in it. And it portrayed the lives of Freud, Jung, and Sabina Spielrein. And I think a lot of artistic license was taken with the story. Um, And and I'd, I'd like to hear what you have to say about it.
1: Well, I had an interesting experience with that. Um, probably six months or so before the movie was released, I had uh, really become interested in the Freud Young letters. Oh, and yeah. And so I began reading them, and then I came across the material about Sabina Spielrein, and, and actually, no, I should say that uh, in an ethics course at the Institute it might have been at the same time or maybe a year prior. I think it must have been a, a couple of years prior. We had watched a film about Sabina Spirring. Probably a few months after that, I had uh, picked up the volume by Curudo, I believe his name is, who it is a, a collection of the journals of Sabina Spirring that were found in her, what had been her uh, apartment
2: yes, in Geneva, right. I
1: believe. Right. Uh, so I had looked at all of that material, and then I had come across um, Sabine Sperrain, Forgotten Pioneer of Psychoanalysis, uh, which is edited by Colleen Covington. And so I was kind of, in the, kind of in the midst of all of that material when the movie came out. So I obviously had uh, a uh, an opinion about uh, the relationship mm-hmm. and so forth, and I was... I was on the board at the Institute and we were invited to attend a premiere uh, of it and I went without uh, high expectations but I actually really enjoyed the movie a lot. I okay. I thought that it really uh, and not that it's it's not a uh, well, th- there's much of it that's straight out of his notes. Another thing that came to light were his notes of her case that are at the bruegel Hospital mm-hmm. in Zurich and much of that beginning of the movie is straight out of those notes Mm -hmm. and i know that at the time that it was made there was a lot of criticism of uh how that was portrayed and that it was kind of a little over the top but it was actually very much reflective of what was in the notes that jung took of, of the case
2: okay
1: so very much of the movie is kind of a putting into dialogue form a lot of what went back and forth between these three individuals in their letters to one another um, and I think that that is all very well done. The, the issue in the film about Jung and, and Sabine Sperrin's relationship sexually is not uh, true or accurate from uh, the, the best evidence. Um, I think it's, it's hard for us <clears throat> at this point in a, in, a, in a post-Freudian world to imagine that two people could be as uh, intimate as uh, Jung and Sabine Esperin were and not have that be a sexual relationship. It's mm-hmm. hard for us to go back to what it would have been like for a young unmarried woman uh, at the beginning of the 19th century to have had a sexual relationship with a man in terms of what that would have cost her.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, there, it, it's it's very clear in her journals that uh, she had considered um well, why don't I just have sex with him, so at least I'll end up with a baby. Least right. some, but but then her concern is, well, what if I don't end up with a baby? Then I will, I won't have that. Plus, I will have lost him as my friend. And then there's additional correspondence that she had with her mother about the about the affair and her mother's advice about how you know she was very fortunate to have this special relationship, but that obviously having it become sexual would just be a disaster. So that. Piece, I don't think is accurate. But in terms of trying to communicate the relationship to us now, um, it would be very difficult to portray it in a way that was not sexual because that's just something that I think we've come to assume. Yes. Um, and the piece of the, the sadomasochistic aspect of it, I certainly don't think there's any basis in the in the material for that. But again, it brings out this... Uh, quality of uh, the relationship that I think again would be difficult to portray otherwise.
0: I
2: see.
1: Yeah. Um, so as a you know it's kind of I, I refer to it in, in the paper that I did on on the time of nonsense looking at, at Jung in the way that Jung related his experiences before the war to the war itself and that his experiences as they as they were portrayed were not, an exact mirror of the war, literally, but symbolically and metaphorically they were. And I think that that's how I kind of see that film, is that it captures metaphorically the dynamics of that relationship. And it also captures kind of um, how Jung became young, in the sense that um, we probably don't appreciate how, uh, his, his situation in, in Zurich, uh, was actually quite limited. We mm-hmm. don't realize that at that point in time, if you were a psychiatrist in Zurich, you couldn't just pick up and move to Berlin or Austria or France or England and, and, and you know, teach at a university or, or start a practice. It was very difficult. His, his, uh, uh you know, the, the foremost psycho, uh, psychiatric hospital in the world was the Berger Holsey. Mm-hmm. um the uh the person in charge of the burger holsey uh, was not going anywhere Uh, he was the number two there uh, jung was and uh, he was not going to be able bloiler was his superior and the way that the university of zurich worked which is where jung was also a lecturer is that he he really wanted to become head of the uh, psychiatric or psychology department at the university but those two positions were tied together, the head of the of the holsey and the head of the psychiatric department at the university, one and the same. So for someone like Jung, there was really nowhere to go in terms of his moving forward in his career uh, in sort of a, a, a logical manner. So mm-hmm. his withdrawing from the Berger-Holsey and from his lectureship and from uh, his connection to... Freud and and being the president of the International Psychoanalytic Association was really uh, he really had he really did that in order to kind of really become who he became to to begin this going this whole other very independent direction that was unconnected to any kind of academic or professional uh, foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that film kind of I think really captures that that movement that he goes through over the course of of that period in his life. So I enjoyed it.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And it's very interesting to hear the different takes on the film. Um, And I appreciate hearing yours. I was wondering, Brock, if you had any upcoming talks that you'd like to tell us about?
1: I do, actually. I have one coming up in October, also at the Institute. Okay. And it's on the sacred mystery of election. Sanctity of Choice and of the Chosen. Mm. And um, what I'm planning to talk about is uh, what it is that we do when we elect or choose or cast a vote.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, kind of psychologically and what's the whole history of the vote or of electing. Um, as as we were talking earlier about Edinger's book on the archetype of the apocalypse, he talks quite a bit about uh, the image of the anointed or the chosen. And uh, originally that was the way in which the uh, the king or the leader was chosen was by God in some fashion through s- somehow the chosen was then anointed and the whole image of anointment uh, really meant the chosen or the elected. And what it is that we're doing when we, when someone is elected, is that they're being chosen to elect, to choose, to make decisions? Mm-hmm. That it, it, it's it's the power of choice or decision that's being conveyed on uh, in, initially the king, and then over time, that whole uh, who it was that did the electing went from a, uh, a, a priest or some uh, figure connected in some fashion to god to then it became uh, hereditary so it was it was by the connection via family to uh the, the the previous uh king or ruler and over time uh the body of of who did the electing slowly began to change um but it changed probably most uh clearly in the history of, of England. But there was this, this slow devolution of the power of electing uh, to uh, some elite body, and that elite body, that special body, slowly increased until eventually you get to where we are today, where in most countries there's some sort of election by individual citizens, some sort of casting a vote or making an election, and in that, it, it kind of as you know, with with Edinger talking about the the whole the image of the Godhead and the and the 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 dark and the light side of of God, uh, we can both Jung and Edinger focus on sort of the selfish aspect of Yahweh, the way mm-hmm. in which uh, he he very much focused on. Um, what he desired and what he wanted. He was a very jealous God, very self-centered, we could say. And then this, this Christ side of God is the very loving, uh, self-sacrificing aspect. And so both of those kind of go together to, to form the image of of the Godhead as, as it existed in the Judeo-Christian uh, Ion. So we come down to this period of time now when, when we elect, we tend to do it based on self-interest. We tend to do it based on, that's if we look at uh, political theory and, and economic theory, it's all, the value is self-interest. And it's assumed that people are going to make choices based on self-interest. And that certainly is a piece of the, of the, of the self, uh, but this other piece of selflessness, or the sense of the importance of community, or what it is that I'm doing that has a kind of a, a larger uh, piece to it, mm. uh, that can get lost in terms of, of when we vote. Um, so the talk is a, is about that whole, uh, the, the, the psychology of what, it, what does it mean to vote, and what does it mean not to vote,
2: uh, mm, in, in many right.
1: respects... In many respects, we could say that's kind of a, of a deflation of almost feeling like I'm not good enough, I'm not elect enough to choose or to cast a ballot. Oh. Um, so that that is those are some of the things that I'm hoping to explore uh, in this talk.
0: Wonderful, and I'll have a link to that on the website. Speaking of if anybody's interested in attending, it's a public talk. Yes, that's correct. Okay, yes. great. Thank you so much for your time today, Brock. Really appreciate you being part of Speaking of Jung.
1: Well, thank you very much, Laura, for having me.
0: You're so welcome. I'd like to thank Mr. Hill once again for agreeing to be recorded for this podcast. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com for more information about the topics that were mentioned today. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and now on Google Play Music. With special thanks to Peter Stuart Lakinen and Michael and Daniel of End of Days Radio. This is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.